going to start by reading from our passage today, which is Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, and then we'll pray. Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you this morning for your revelation. We thank you for its consistency uh, across all the pages of Scripture, Lord. Uh, we thank you for your perfect self-consistency. Uh, we thank you for the ways in which uh, we get to see the movement of the Spirit in the life of our Savior uh, while he is here on earth uh, among us. And in all his actings in Scripture, we see, Lord, your oneness, Lord, uh, the way in which the persons of the Trinity move together, Lord, and are not divided. Lord, I also want to lift up, uh, it's uh, brought to my attention, Lord, that um, the uh, Denise, uh, Jennifer Graves' uh, mother has uh, passed from cancer, Lord. Uh, we just pray that you would be with the family uh, and that you would be encouraging them, Lord, strengthening them, Lord, and giving them real joy and delight to know that uh, she has gone on ahead, Lord. Uh, we just thank you for your goodness to your children, Lord. We thank you that our days are numbered, Lord, and we don't have to uh, endure on the cursed earth forever, uh, but that we do get to look forward to rest, eternal rest, uh, in your presence with your people. Uh, we thank you for all the good things that you give. We thank you that we have an opportunity to listen to teaching from your word today. We pray that you would bless Tom and bless us, the hearers. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. John Owen writes that the first special work of the Holy Spirit on the human nature of Christ is the miraculous conception of his body in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's what we considered last week, the activity of the Holy Spirit in the conception and the incarnation of Jesus. Owen goes on to say the second special work of the Holy Spirit on the human nature of Christ was to equip him for all that he had to do. That's where we're going to camp out this morning. And there's a lot to address. There's a lot to see here. We certainly won't treat it exhaustively, but we're going to hit some of the high, the high points as, as best we can this morning. The activity of the Holy Spirit in equipping and empowering the man, Christ Jesus, to do all that he did from the time of his birth to the time of his resurrection. The passage that Nathan just read from Isaiah 11, which was written about 700 years before Jesus came and fulfilled it, speaks of the sevenfold spirit that would rest upon God's Messiah. 
This spirit is described as the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of strength, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. Now, I'm not alone in believing that this, this uh, very clearly messianic text in the Old Testament explains uh, the repeated references that we find in the early chapters of the book of Revelation that talk about the seven spirits of God, the seven spirits of God. You'll see that in Revelation 1, 4, Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. Uh, in, in Revelation 5, one of the 24 elders who was before the throne of, of God said to John the Apostle, Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now that sounds kind of cryptic, it's kind of mysterious, but starting with the seventh day of, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, after the six days of creation, seven is the number of perfection, of completeness. And I believe that the repeated references to the seven spirits of God in Revelation speak of the person of the Holy Spirit in the fullness of his nature and work. By the way, I believe, <laughs> I believe that, uh, that the seven horns refer to the, to the perfection of Christ's dominion because in the Old Testament, look in the book of Daniel, and you see that the, the horns are kingdoms or nations that are under the authority of earthly rulers. Um, I believe that this reference, that the lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, refers to the perfection of Christ's dominion and to the perfection of the Holy Spirit's provision and activity in, in Christ and through Christ. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God, possessed and still possesses that fullness. During his earthly life and ministry, Jesus had the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of Yahweh working in and through him continually. As the incarnate Son of God, Jesus is perfect God and perfect man possessing two natures and two wills in one person without conflict. I said I erroneously in listening back, uh, actually it was my brother Paul that pointed out last week, I said that Jesus possessed two natures and one will. That's not right. He possessed a human nature and a, and a human will, a divine nature with the divine will, but there was no conflict between the wills. There was never any disagreement. Okay, perfect agreement. This is called the, it's what theologians call the hypostatic union. It's two natures, two wills, one person. During his 33 years here in a mortal body on this cursed earth, surrounded by fallen people like you and me, the human will of Jesus 
submitted to his divine will by the power of the Holy Spirit. That perfect submission was continual and it was without exception. With the constant enablement of the Holy Spirit, Jesus delighted in the fear of, of Yahweh. He judged not by what his eyes saw on earth, nor did he make decisions by what his, eye, what his ears heard on earth, but instead he spoke and he acted in perfect righteousness, justice, and faithfulness in all that he did, all by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I, what I want to make sure that we don't miss here, and this is, this is something that a lot of believers, a lot of Christians just, they never really even contemplate much, but this is so important, and it's so important for us because Christ is our forerunner. Um, what I want to make sure we don't miss is the very intentional nature of Jesus' dependence, of his dependence on the activity of the Holy Spirit during his earthly life and ministry. The dependence of Jesus as man on the enablement and on the power of God the Holy Spirit was by the choice and by the eternal decree of the triune God. That dependence was as much the Son's intention as, as it was the Father's and the Spirit's intention. Because the three persons of the Trinity always act in perfect concert and perfect coordination as one. The power and the glory and the knowledge that was withheld from Jesus as man during his first advent was with the perfect cooperation of both the divine and the human nature of Jesus. A key purpose for that withholding was that as man, Jesus would be made as much like you and me as he could be without any participation in our sin. Let me say that again. A key purpose for the withholding of certain aspects of the divine glory and power and even knowledge from the man Jesus Christ was in order that Jesus as man would be made as much like you and me as he could be without participation in our sin. So in the New Testament, here's what we find. Like every man and woman who ever walked this earth, as Jesus grew up physically from infancy to childhood to youth to adulthood, he also grew in knowledge, wisdom, and spiritual maturity before God and before men. Hebrews 5.8 even says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. This is talking about Jesus as man. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Jesus never disobeyed his father, but as man, his perfect obedience met with test after test after test, growing in depth and expression with every test that was passed, and he passed them all. He passed them all. In perfect submission of his human will to his divine will, the will of the triune God, Jesus laid down his life for our sakes in perfect humility and self-denial. Not only at the cross, but every moment of his life leading to the cross. 
If there's one thing that God has already substantially changed about my own understanding through this study of the Holy Spirit thus far, it is to give me a greater awareness and gratitude for the extent to which the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, humbled himself every moment of his earthly life in order to be our forerunner, the firstborn among many brethren. As man, Jesus was made like us, and the very heart of that sameness with us was his constant and very great dependence on the Holy Spirit in all things. He was as we now are in that dependence on the Holy Spirit. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul says, very familiar passage, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he, he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, to be clung to, but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance of man uh, as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This self-humbling and entire obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ was to the point of death on a cross. But that's not where the humbling started. The cross was the end point and the goal of that self-emptying, not the beginning of it. During every moment of his earthly life until his resurrection, Jesus, in his humanness, lived in as complete a dependence on the Father and the Spirit as you and I live every moment of our earthly lives. In the next two, two uh, messages, when we start to look at the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives, this is foundational. This is bedrock for us. Now, I know I'm repeating myself here, but this is the point that I pray God will sear into our minds and our hearts this morning. As the only person who will ever be fully God and fully man, the Son of God willingly and deliberately set aside his equality with God during the 33 years of his earthly life in a mortal body, living among men like us, people like us on this cursed earth. Jesus willingly and deliberately set aside much of the transcendent power and glory and knowledge that belongs to his divine nature in order to become like us. The supernatural power that men heard in his words and saw in his works was power given to the man, the carpenter's son, Jesus of Nazareth, through the Holy Spirit whom his father had sent to be upon him, alongside him, and with him continually. I know this, this is uncomfortable for us. It's hard for us to even think in these terms. We're very good at embracing the divinity of Christ. We have a real hard time comprehending the, hum the humanness, the humanity of Christ. His humanity is much more like our humanity than we are prone to think. And that's a good thing when it comes to him being our forerunner. And none of this denies anything of, of 
who Christ is in the fullness of his glory. He set that fullness aside to come and to live among us and to be our Savior. And then he, and then he ascended back to that rightful glory and sits at the right hand of his Father as our advocate right now. For the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at some of the major events of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, and we're going to consider how vital was the work of the Holy Spirit in all that Jesus said and did. We're going to start with the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15 says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But answering, Jesus said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now you'll notice Jesus didn't contradict John when John said it ought to be, it ought to be I being baptized by you. Jesus didn't contradict him. He just said, Permit it at this time. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John permitted him. After being baptized, verse 16, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. John saw this, the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Jesus. Um, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The great reluctance of John the Baptist to baptize Jesus was more than understandable, right? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance from sin. A baptism by water through which a person publicly declared his or her desire to turn back to God and to be reconciled with God. This was a baptism in which a person acknowledged that he or she was a sinner in need of salvation, in need of forgiveness. John's baptism put the baptized person in the mode of waiting expectantly for the salvation from their sinful condition that God was about to provide through the long-promised Messiah and Savior whose coming John the Baptist had been appointed to announce, right? That's what John the Baptist was doing. He was announcing the coming of the King and Savior. John's was a baptism of anticipation, eager expectation of forgiveness from sin and reconciliation with God by God's doing. But Jesus never sinned. So why did he ask John to baptize him? Well, I believe there are a few reasons at least, I'm sure some that I haven't even thought of. I think in, as one facet of this, Jesus was baptized publicly to publicly associate himself with the sinful condition of those he came to save. Not as a fellow sinner, but as the perfect sinless man who would bear our sin upon himself to set us free from sin. I mean, think about it. Here's John the Baptist announcing the coming of the Savior, baptizing people with a baptism of repentance, and now the Savior walks up and is baptized, and the Spirit comes upon him, and God de declares, this is the one, this is the one that, you're, that you've been waiting for. And that 
is the second part of the, the purpose of his baptism, I believe, was to be publicly identified by his Father as the beloved eternal Son of God who, unlike the rest of mankind, was actually pleasing to his Father in all respects. And third, I believe that his purpose was to publicly manifest his, Jesus' own union with and dependence on the Holy Spirit for power, enablement, and encouragement. Luke's gospel actually says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. This was very visible. It was very visible. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Peter, I believe, points to that third purpose of Jesus' baptism and anointing. He says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. <laughs> See, Peter, Peter ties all of Jesus' miraculous works, all of the good things, all of the healings, all of the miracles that he did to the special anointing that Jesus received from God the Father at his baptism, and that anointing was with the Holy Spirit and with power. What power? The power of the Holy Spirit. John 1, 29 to, uh, to 34 uh, presents the Holy Spirit's, it says that the Holy Spirit's descent upon Jesus was, was again very clearly visible. John bore witness saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remaining on him. The baptism of Jesus was the Father's public and audible, hearable, witness to the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. God's proclamation from heaven for all to hear was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the baptism of Jesus was God's public and visible demonstration that Jesus was specially anointed with his presence and power by the person of the Holy Spirit to accomplish all that the Father had ordained for Jesus to do during his first advent. Now, there's so much more that could be said about the Spirit's role in the baptism of Jesus, but I want to move on. We've got several points to cover. Mark's gospel tells us that immediately after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. And there's several things going on there. When it says that the Holy Spirit drove him out, that, that word that's translated drove out is the same word that the gospel accounts use over and over when, it, when they're talking about Jesus casting out demons. It's a forceful word. Now this does not mean that that the Holy Spirit had to force Jesus against his will into this direct confrontation with the devil. The forcefulness of the word cast out, I believe, points to the great deprivation that Jesus in his humanness experienced as he entered into this world-changing encounter with Satan. In the temptation of Jesus... The seed of the woman, whom Genesis 3 verse 15 promised would crush the head of Satan, 
now went toe-to-toe with the one whose head he came to crush. Jesus was cast out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, wilderness to face 40 days and 40 nights of great deprivation, of hunger, thirst, exposure to the elements, the threat of attack by wild beasts, and ultimately, Satan's most fervent effort to derail his entire purpose for taking on our humanity. But Jesus was not alone when he went toe-to-toe with Satan. The very one who cast him into that situation was with him every moment. Luke's account says, Luke 4 verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Again, in his humanity, Jesus willingly subjected himself to continual dependence on the same Holy Spirit-sourced care and provision that you and I cannot live without. Mark's gospel points out that during those same 40 days and nights, the angels were ministering to Jesus. And that's an interesting point that we'll get to when we start talking about the, the Spirit's work in us. But in his lecture series, Who is the Holy Spirit? Sinclair Ferguson draws a, an intriguing and, and, a, and sort of stunning parallel and contrast between the response of the first Adam and the response of the last and perfect Adam in the face of Satan's ruthless attack designed to absolutely undo each of those those men, Adam and Jesus. This is really, really intriguing. The first Adam was in a place of superabundant provision and beauty in the company of tame beasts that he had given names to, They were completely submitted to him. Adam was not tempted by Satan face to face, but through his wife, Eve, whom Satan had confronted first. Yet Adam miserably failed to resist Satan's temptation. Adam responded to Satan's distortion of God's word by embracing it and making it man's word. The last and perfect Adam, Jesus Christ, was confronted by Satan not in a place of perfect provision and abundance, but in a place of great deprivation in the wilderness. He was hungry, thirsty, exposed to the elements, and in peril of attack from wild beasts but he bore the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus firmly resisted Satan's temptation without wavering. Jesus responded to Satan's distortion of God's word by declaring God's undistorted word without adjustment or equivocation. And Satan walked away with no victory whatsoever. The Holy Spirit was with the Lord Jesus Christ in his temptation, granting him power, boldness, the words of God. We've considered 
briefly the activity of the Holy Spirit in the baptism of Jesus and in the temptation of Jesus. Let's turn our attention to the activity of the Holy Spirit in the words and works of Jesus. In this, on this, we could spend many messages, but we're going to, again, hit the high points. Having willingly set aside the benefits of his divine nature in order to live a sinless life under the, under the same kinds of limitations that are true of mortal men, yet without sin, Jesus made himself as dependent as you and I are on the Spirit's enablement to give us all that we are to say to others on God's behalf. Robert Gramacchi in his, uh, his volume on the Holy Spirit points out that even, even aside from the Holy Spirit's special enablement, Jesus, quote, displayed the wisdom of God, the wisdom that God intended humans to have before the fall and the entrance of sin. And think about this for just a minute. King Solomon, during the time that he walked in submission to God, which didn't last forever, <laughs> didn't last his whole life, he was declared by God to be the wisest man who ever walked the earth. But imagine what Solomon's wisdom would have been like if he never had a sin nature and never sinned. Imagine the wisdom that would inhabit the words and actions of a sinless human being. That's Jesus, the man. But Jesus did not speak merely from the wisdom of his sinless humanity, independently of the Holy Spirit. Every word that Jesus spoke, he spoke on behalf of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. In John 7, the Jews at the Jerusalem temple were marveling at the words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth. They said, how has the, this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus answered and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. John the Baptist said of Jesus, he whom God sent speaks the words of God for he, God, gives the spirit without measure. He gives the spirit without measure. It was God's measureless, unlimited outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus that, that produced the words and the behavior, the actions of Jesus. Every word that he spoke during his earthly ministry was precisely what God had ordained for him to say. That's what Jesus said. He did not speak on his own initiative. And in this, Jesus was the perfect and preeminent prophet. A prophet was never to speak from the top of his head. He was never to say anything that did not come from God. In fact, if he spoke presumptuously on behalf of God, that which God had not said, Deuteronomy 18, he was to be stoned to death. Jesus is the perfect and preeminent prophet. Jesus spoke the words of God every time he spoke at all. In the same way, it was by the measureless, unlimited outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus that everything that he did 
was also from God. In John chapter 5, the Jews sought to kill Jesus because he was, quote, making himself equal with God by calling God his own father. Jesus answered them in, in that event and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. The Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Every word that Jesus spoke, every illness that Jesus healed, every demon that Jesus cast out, every soul of man and woman that Jesus won, all that he did was done in perfect dependence on and by the power of God through the person of the Holy Spirit. Not because Jesus in his divine nature didn't have the power to do these things, but in order that he would be as we are now. Since we've seen that the Holy Spirit was with Jesus, enabling and empowering all that he said, all that he did, when he came the first time from heaven to earth, it should be no surprise to us that he took that same spirit-enabled submission all the way to the cross. Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of bulls, of goats and bulls, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now, what part did the Holy Spirit play in the death of Christ? As Jesus moved toward the cross, the sinless man knew the depth of his dependence on God more clearly than any other man ever has. Matthew 26 narrates the events in the Garden of Gethsemane just before Jesus was betrayed by Judas into the hands of those who would demand his crucifixion. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and it says, And he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Of course, they fell asleep. But... He went a little beyond them. He fell on his face and he prayed and he said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for even one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. There's no battle of wills here. 
Throughout his earthly life, Jesus as perfect man pervasively needed the God-sourced care and provision that was given to him by the Holy Spirit. That care and provision was always with him, except on the day of his atoning death in our place. Even on that terrible day, God's word makes it clear that Jesus' own willing submission to his Father and perfect love for us that kept him on the path to the cross and was decreed by God before the foundations of the world carried him all the way. His, it, was, it, was perf- it was perfect love that drove Jesus to the cross. In Matthew 26, after Judas kissed Jesus to identify him to the, the temple guard, to those who had come to arrest him, Peter drew his sword and he cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Jesus miraculously healed the man's ear, but, but Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sh- sword shall perish by the sword. And he said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Legion of Roman soldiers was 6,000 men. So he's saying, God, I could just ask God and he'd send 72,000 angels down here. He says, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Jesus had no intent of seeking rescue from the mockery shame, torture, and excruciating death that he suffered in our place. Not one second of the unspeakable pain and abandonment that Jesus suffered was suffered unwillingly. As perfect God and Savior, Jesus had come from heaven to earth for precisely that moment. That's what he said in John chapter 12. (laughs) For this, for this purpose, I came to, this, to this, this moment. As perfect man, Jesus knew that he must suffer a more profound and unspeakable pain than any man ever suffered. By bearing on himself the full guilt and the full penalty that was due to us because of our grievous sin against God. On that day, Jesus, as the only sinless and perfect man, was as dependent on the enablement of the Holy Spirit as any man has ever been. In fact, far more than any man has ever been. The same Holy Spirit who rested on and walked alongside Jesus in his death was mightily at work in his resurrection. The third day after his death, in Romans 1, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. John 10, verses 17 and 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. 
No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. John Owen says, The Father raised Jesus from the dead because justice had been satisfied. But Christ also raised himself from the dead and took his life again by an act of love, care, and power flowing from his divine nature to his human nature. And I would add, based on Romans 1-4 and a couple of passages in Ephesians, that the power, the power by which both the Father and the Son acted to raise the body of Jesus from the dead was the power of the Holy Spirit. The same person of the Trinity whose power now indwells and enables us to do all that God has assigned to us, whom he has raised to newness of life through our union with Jesus Christ. That's a lot of information, I know. I, my purpose, my desire this morning was to, to show you some of the, the key events in the life of Jesus and to go back to the Word and see how pervasively the Holy Spirit was involved in all of these things that happened in Jesus' life. Constantly. When you get to the so what, to the application, our plan, Lord willing, is to spend the next two Sundays pondering the incredible, powerful ramifications of the Holy Spirit's work in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us, the ramifications for us who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We'll see that those ramifications are powerful, they are profound, they are pervasive, they are life-defining for us. But I want to wrap up again uh, this morning by reminding all of us that our purpose in considering the work of the Holy Spirit in the first advent of Jesus is first and foremost that we will more fully know and adore and honor our great God and Savior. The floodlight ministry of the Holy Spirit, as J.I. Packer puts it, has its purpose to shine the light on Jesus. And that's where our focus must be. I don't give out a lot of, uh, of assignments uh, when I teach the Word in this, in this forum, in this context, but I have, I have an assignment for you this morning. Sometime between now and next Sunday, devote at least 30 minutes to talk with a family member or a friend and then to agree with God concerning the perfect dependence of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Holy Spirit during His earthly life and ministry. That'll be really good preparation when we start looking at our dependence on the Holy Spirit next week. Dear Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of the constant and willing dependence of Jesus on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That the Lord of glory, the creator and the sustainer of all that exists, would humble himself to walk as a man in such entire reliance on the Spirit is a mystery beyond our comprehension. 
but it is a truth that you call us to embrace, to, to delight in, and to proclaim. Dear Father, keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, as we walk in that same beautiful dependence on the Holy Spirit every moment of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.